so. I like to cook, right? I want to move to Malaysia. In order to jumpstart my social scene, I had a couple dinner parties. And I met this guy. And I'm going to call him Fancy Kumar. And Fancy Kumar was the best brand new friend in a strange place a person could ask for. Kumar operated at the center of the circle of artists, models, and musicians. And he always knew where the hot parties were bumping and always insisted that I join him. Which was great, because in Fancy Kumar's world, the champagne kept popping, the dancing never stopped, and people always had a smile on their face. <laughs> he enjoyed making fun of me because every once in a while, I had to go home and go to sleep. What is wrong with you? <laughs> it's the little thing I have called a JLB. Jobs are for suckers, mate. But it must be nice to be you. I was jealous. Kumar's family owned one of the most popular banana leaf restaurants in the city of Kuala Lumpur. Banana leaf in that the food was all served using an actual banana leaf as the plate. Kumar's mother was known for making the best curry in the land. It was simple, down-home food. But there was something special about her curry. Famous people like politicians and actors showed up there to sit down next to regular folk just to get a taste. It was always packed. One morning, I get a phone call from Kumar. Glenn, buck up, mate, come quickly. I go off to the restaurant, top speed, run to the kitchen, and get that feeling that everyone has been screaming at each other just moments before. Kumar, his three brothers, and their mother are scowling at each other, and then they're scowling at me. And Fancy Kumar's like, Mommy says she's not making any more curry, Glenn. She says we can do it by ourselves from now on, Glenn. She says we are the laziest, most shiftless sons in the land, Glenn. I looked over at Mommy planted on a stool with her arms folded. You can see the fury boiling off her. Well, you know, Kumar, frankly, I think mommy's got a point. But good luck to you. No, 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 you don't understand. Mommy won't make the curry. So, you make the curry. What, are you crazy, mate? I can't make curry. That's what I call you for. <laughs> call me? What you calling me for? Your mom's been making curry every day of your life and you don't know how? Yeah, you know, mate, I'm not good for cooking and the cleaning and stuff. It's difficult, you know. I can cook for a couple people at the house, but not for 300 people in a restaurant. You've got to help me. <sighs> All right, Kumar. Thank you, mate. I call my own workplace. I tell them I'm going to be late. And then I start trying to figure out how to make this curry. The restaurant serves four dishes. Vegetable, chicken, goat, and beef curry with rice on a banana leaf. Vendors are pulling up on mini bikes, delivering meat and coconut milk and vegetables and stuff. And still, the mother will not move. She's planted like a big unhappy gargoyle in the middle of the kitchen. And her idiot sons, including Fancy Kumar, they're, they're in the way, shouting at each other. Kumar is dressed in this gorgeous white linen shirt, aviator sunglasses, wingtips, like he's about to go to the club. One of his brothers is wearing an actual matador's hat. They look like the village people are about to perform YMCA. I just set him to chopping up carrots or something and again start trying to figure out this curry. I'm putting a bunch of spices and stuff in pots. I'm cooking meat and you know, I'm pouring oil, stirring stuff around and thankfully they have a rice cooker for the rice, which I have to tell these idiots how to use. Dami, put in the rice. Add water. Turn on. Uh, like this? Right before the first lunchtime customers show up, I'm petrified. But we scoop some of the stuff out on the banana leaf and start handing it out. The silence lasts maybe 80, 90 seconds. And then 
There's this horrified shouting. There's this spitting, the waving of the hands, finger pointing. I go ahead and taste my own concoction that has everybody so upset. And it is the nastiest, foulest mess I've ever put in my mouth. I have to scrub my own tongue with mango juice. It's terrible. So I tell Fancy Kumar, you know, thanks for all the good times, but I've got to go back to my own job now. And he insists I come back the next day to make more curry. So there I am next morning trying to cook. And there's Mommy, still looking angry. I pick up some random powder to throw in some frying oil, and I see Mommy wince. So I put the powder down. I pick up another canister, and she frowns. Then I glance at a jar of cinnamon-looking stuff, and she kind of lights up. So I throw that in the oil. And from then on, everything I pick up, I look at Mommy. And she doesn't tell me what's up exactly, but she kind of grimaces a lot. And I make the curries. And the people come. And it's horrible again, but not as horrible as the day before. And by day three, the curry's almost passable. Fancy Kumar actually wears a t-shirt instead of one of his fancy collared shirts as he works. His brothers found real aprons and have taken off most of their shiny gold jewelry. They smell like food and not hair pomade. By day four, I get to the kitchen and everybody's already knocking out the work. Kumar's telling vendors where to put stuff. One brother is chopping vegetables. Two others are cleaning up the prep area. Mommy still sits in the middle, but when she thinks nobody's looking, I see a taste of smile creep into her lips. The curry is all right. And on day five, it happens. I'm about to dig in and mommy steps up. She hip checks me away from her stove and starts making something people would actually want to eat. Fancy Kumar and his brothers pretend like they didn't even notice a change in command. They just hand mommy whatever she barks for and everyone keeps trying not to grin. My work was done there, so I leave. But I go back for lunch, and it's delicious. I go, hey, Kumar, you want to go out tonight? No way, mate. I've got plenty of work to do around here. Some people call it making the best of a bad situation. Other people call it life. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Lemonade. Amazing stories about people taking something sour, mixing it with some sugar and some ice, until it tastes very sweet indeed. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. We're going to start out today's Lemonade episode in merry old England, where Justin Riven Tires and his wife Linda had just moved from London into the English countryside and purchased their first home with plans to build a life together. It represented an opportunity for us to build a new life together. Uh, I guess we thought we were we would always be there. I remember the first night that we were there. I remember feeling a bit nervous, but very excited about what the future held. It was 15 months later, 3 o'clock in the morning. We were lying in bed while I was asleep. Linda woke me with the words, What's that noise? I could hear this strange kind of creaking noise. I was already suspicious that something was going badly wrong. And I remember putting my hand against the ceiling and the ceiling was hot. Thinking, crikey, this feels like fire. And the house was just, everything was timber. Timber floor, timber wall panel. And smoke just rose from the gaps between all of the floorboards. The house was alight. We knew we were in trouble and ran out of the house. 
and we were just standing on the road and we'd been watching the house with a little orange glow at the windows and thinking, you know, how would it be if we lost the stuff that was in that room? Linda, she was just sobbing my pink sofa. Moments later, it was just a fireball. I guess it took a minute or two and then we realised there just wasn't going to be anything left. In the weeks following the fire, you just missed everything, you know. We had to start again from scratch, there was nothing. We just wanted to feel secure, to have a normal life again. We were able to rebuild the house in 15 months. We'd built a dream house, we'd designed the house, we'd put into it everything that we wanted. I remember the first night that we were there, we climbed into bed and suddenly we were as cosy as anything. But the house fire had changed us. It wasn't enough that we would just live in this lovely house for the rest of our lives and retire there. We had this mad idea that what we wanted to do was, was build a boat and go sailing. If I had a boat and go out on the ocean But it was a joke because I couldn't hang a shelf and I was a DIY, do-it-yourself disaster. I think the way that the boat idea came around for us was that we talked about it without ever really thinking that it would be a part of our lives. There was a morning that we woke up and the thing had got into our bloodstream and we were talking about how on earth we would find the money to build a boat because we never had the money just lying around to do that. And we had a pretty good idea that living on a boat, you could do it really inexpensively and taste real freedom. And that was it. That was what we were after. We met a guy who told us he was a boat builder. He drew us some plans of a lovely old traditional sailing boat. We felled some trees ourselves. We bought some plank timber from the sawmill. We filled the field with timber. And then we came to the first day to start to build this boat and suddenly I realised I had no idea how you, how you build a boat. And I remember Linda was at work and I was, I was just feeling reckless. I thought I was such a fool to have spent all these thousands of pounds on timber and caught uh, the reflection of myself in a window and I thought what a useless fool I looked for having believed that I could build a boat. There I was, I knew nothing about it. And I picked up these plans that actually meant nothing to me. And they were using words that I didn't understand, describing bits of boats I didn't know boats had got. When Linda came home, I was going to have to say that I couldn't do it. And all the dreams that we'd built up about building a boat and going off sailing, I was going to have to tell her that they were off. And I felt so bad about that. Something in me decided that I'd better just find a way and started thinking and, and gradually some ideas came about where I might start building a boat. We met a guy in the early days and he said to us, you know, 95% of the people who build boats don't finish them. And as soon as he said that, it frightened me in case I was one of the 95%. So we started working 12, 14 hours a day, just seven days a week, just going for it. Of course, there's a lot to building a boat. The boat weighs 15 tons. It's got 10,000 parts, all of which you have to manufacture yourself, bit by bit out of seasoned timber. Two years and nine months later, and I'll tell you what, she's the prettiest boat you've ever seen. You would imagine that you would want to make sure everything was safe after a house fire. You want to be doubly insured and not take any chances. But it did have the opposite effect because actually we weren't afraid anymore because we'd lost everything. We knew how that felt and we've never had boat insurance. We know that if the boat ends up on the rocks, that is one of the possible outcomes of owning a boat. And we're not afraid of that. We launched the boat. That was all fantastic. She floated, that was a bonus. And then we got the sails up that first day and we didn't know really how to sail, but suddenly everything was done and we were just setting off on 
our first journey. I think it was about four o'clock in the morning, so everything was really quiet. We just saw the sun rise blood red above the horizon. There was just the faintest little breeze and our boat padded her way out of the harbour. Like a long sigh, we were set free on the water. If I had go out on the ocean We could all together go out on the ocean Just me upon my pony on my Now, long-time snappers will not be surprised to learn that Justin and Linda's real adventures began after they boarded the boat. Find a link to the book on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. Snap Judgment The Lemonade episode. We just poured you the first class. There is plenty more where that came from. In fact, we're going to run down the freeway. Someone's going to touch sand for the very first time, and somebody else looks like Monica Lewinsky. When Snap Judgment continues, stay tuned. So when you're just cooling or fooling in a shade, uh, don't forget that funky lemonade. Snap Judgment, the Lemonade episode. Now, Snappers, I want you to do me a favor. Say something. Say anything you want to out loud. You can even whisper it if need be. And now, imagine that that was the last full sentence you'll ever say for the rest of your life. This is one of the sounds of my father speaking. My father can't speak like he used to. Nothing. He used to talk. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. He used to talk a lot. He used to pin me in the corner of the kitchen and force me into political debates I didn't want to have. My father was always right. Right wing and right in your face. On a March morning nearly nine years ago, I got a phone call at 5 a.m., My dad was in the hospital. He'd had a stroke. We didn't know what to expect while we waited for him to open his eyes. When he finally did, he looked up and said two words. Let's go. Let's go. He couldn't go anywhere, though. He was paralyzed on his left side. The paralysis lasted less than a day. What remains is aphasia. So you're writing down aphasia? And he wrote down stroke. My father writes a lot. He usually carries a pen and a pad of paper, but when he forgets, he writes words in the air with his finger. In order to hear what my father says, you have to read him. Society. Steve equals feeble mind. So you're saying that in society, when you went out, People yes. treated like you like you had a feeble mind. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a feeble mind? Oh, no. <laughs> 
Unless people with aphasia have someone to translate their thoughts into words, they're trapped. My father figured this out through his own silent struggle. How long did it take us to talk about it to the extent where you felt that you were being listened to? Um, oh, um. So you spent five years with aphasia. Yeah. With people not even acknowledging that it had yeah. happened. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dad. Yeah, oh, good. When he first had the stroke and needed me to listen, I was too overwhelmed by fear, sorrow, resentment. I felt as though I had lost him, not just his voice. It wasn't until he started using us, his family, as sounding boards, mirrors for facial expressions and gestures. It wasn't until he started to speak through us that I understood he hadn't gone anywhere at all. You were a sales manager. Yes. Yeah. You made a lot of money. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My father made $150,000 a year when he was working in sales. Now he gets a disability pension of $890 per month. So all of a sudden, you yes. had this stroke, and for the first three years of your stroke, you were trying to sort out maybe yes. the difference between that type of life. Yes, thank you, yes. So you're trying to sort out the difference between that kind of life where you were always number one and, and whatever you wanted to do, yes. you could just accomplish it. Yes. And then here you were. Nothing. You put your hands out and you just said nothing. Steve, then you just drew a line. Then a line above it. And then a line above it. And then a line above it. And then a line above it. With every line my father draws, I think of the time he must have sat silent putting himself into context, pulling himself back together. And now you've drawn a pyramid with strong at the top. Yeah. Without words, he was left in a place where self-esteem mattered more than self-importance. And he had to accept that there were things beyond his control. Aphasia. You've learned to love yes. aphasia. Yeah, good. So you're saying in the acceptance of it. Sure. Accepting it. Yes. I'm going to keep throwing out words and you tell me if yeah. I'm right, okay? Understanding. Yeah. Yielding. Yes, yeah. Wow. What made you able to sort of move towards loving something that stole, took, I mean, it took something away from you. Yeah. Do you feel that it gave something back? Yeah. What did it give back? It gave back love. Yeah. How did it give back love? I love you. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> Good. It's strange to hear my dad thank me for speaking his words. He can't talk the way he once did. But we've discovered a new language. And he's wrote your name, Steve Goff. Joy. Minute? Yes. Oh. You just go minute to minute. Joy, minute to minute. Good. Same philosophy. Yes. Teresa. Well, yeah. <laughs> I try to go minute to minute, but... Let's go. Still live with joy. Yes. <laughs> That's hard. I know. I know. Teresa and Stephen Goff so very, very much for sharing their story with the SNAP. To hear the full-length documentary that won Teresa a Third Coast Radio Impact Award, we're going to have a link to the original piece in so many words on our website, snapjudgment.org. And big thanks as well to Julia DeWitt for bringing us that story. Our next piece comes from a woman who was convicted of burglary, and because it was her third offense, even though she had never been violent, she was sentenced to 18 years 
under California's three strikes mandate. The first thing you hear when you wake up is the loud, like a machine gun popping down the hallway. They unlock all the doors and it's like a loud bang that just resonates through the hallway. You set right up, that's at like five after six in the morning. And then 200 women just talking immediately. That's how you wake up every day in prison. The worst thing about prison was the frickin' noise from the second you open your eyes in the morning until you're lucky enough to go to sleep at night. It was constant. You could not even take a shower without hearing conversation. And all night long, even at nighttime, you hear the guards walking up and down the hall or they're talking from one with their buddies and they're jangling their keys. And the loudspeaker and the paging and the, you know, just constant, constant noise. Every day that I woke up, I just like, oh, God. I got to deal with another day in prison. I would give my right arm to be out and to be free, but there were also days that I was able to relax. I gravitated towards the people that I knew that were positive and that I saw were good, decent people. I felt more love and acceptance from the people around me in prison than I felt in my entire life. We cooked little meals and stuff, you know, and we would sit down and have our little dinners together. And when I wasn't feeling good, they would bring me, you know, little chicken soup and little stuff to make me feel better. And for the holidays, we would like have a big spread at Christmas in the room. You know, it was, it was just really, really nice. A couple of older women that um, are in for like murdering their husbands. If I saw anybody giving them a bad time, of course, I would step up. Sometimes I would sit there and catch myself daydreaming, wishing one of them was my sister. Or I know a woman that's a little older. I used to just like want her to be my mom so bad, you know. New Year's Eve of 2011. It finally hit me that I could say, I'm going home next year. And then I started counting everything. I got one more birthday. I was counting flag day, secretary day, everything that, you know, the last year was the countdown. Stand clear of the gate. I was released on a Saturday morning it was wonderful. You know, I felt like frickin' Snow White going through the, you know, the birds singing and the blue sky. My father asked me what was one of the things he could give me as like a coming home present, and I said, I just want to be alone with silence. I don't want no TV, no phone, no nothing. I just want to be alone with silence. The first time that I had a little bit of quiet time, I was here in this little studio apartment. It was in the middle of the day and I, I was sitting here and then and I like kept jumping and I, it's like my head just started screaming. It's like I didn't know what to do. I'm like, oh my God, it's quiet. The isolation I feel outside the prison walls has been a surprise to me. It's hard being away from my friends and it's hard. I feel lost. I don't I don't know what to do half the time. I sometimes I'm 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 standing there and I just flat up don't know what to do with myself. You know, there you're told when to wake up, you're told when to eat, when to shower, when to go to bed, you're told when to do everything. And, and here, it's kind of terrifying in a way because I, I'm afraid I'll never learn. 
I used to sit in prison and I would watch these girls go in and out and do all their little parole violations and I think, oh my God, how could they do I would give anything to be out. How can I be ungrateful? I'm out here and I'm, I'm scared and I'm alone and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't feel very freaking grateful all the time, you know. I feel like um, a disappointment to my friends because some of my friends I've had to leave behind that are probably never going to get out. And I know what those people inside, they would want me to keep plugging, keep moving forward and try to build a good, happy life for myself. I've written letters, you know, roommates come, roommates go. It's always, oh yeah, all right, I'll send it. And you never hear from them again. I didn't want to be one of those people. I picked a core group that I write. It's like when I experience things, I, I write down, I write down my first, you know, my first time seeing the beach, my first, now I can write my first time going to Starbucks. I've never been in a Starbucks until this morning. I receive letters and they just are so happy when I send them a little picture and they're just like, oh my God, it was so good to see you and, you know, see you on the beach, you know, I know, how, how did the sand feel? It's like I can share with them a little bit of, of life, you know, and that's more of a precious gift than I could ever really think of giving them. Annette Mboden for sharing her story with The Snap. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Pat Masidi Miller. Now, Snap favorite Gypsy Yo takes the Snap mic with a story about the worst visit to a zoo I could possibly imagine. In the crazy year of 1997, which is commonly known as the year of machine gun serenades in my country, I fell in love with my husband. We met in a church, in a street of boarded up bread stores and paralyzed buses. On our first date, we took a walk through what had been the town's only zoo. The animals long gone, at the first premonition of war. Some killed, some cooked by the zookeeper's wife into exotic dinners, had left behind empty cages like frozen mouths. Still, we stopped and read each inscription as if something alive was still roaming inside. He held my hand for the first time by the peacock cage. He found a single feather caught in the wire and stuck it in my hair. In the background, there were machine guns going off in perpetual serenades. It made for terrible first date music. So this is how we kissed. On our second date, we did not leave my neighborhood. We sat on the crooked steps of my concrete apartment building, surrounded by walls scarred by greedy stray bullets, obscene graffiti, lazy man's piss, and political posters. We kissed in broad daylight, never minding the pack of stray dogs barking at each passing bicycle, or my father howling from the third floor window. We kissed until the last police patrol whistle quenched the light of a thousand windows. On our third date, he brought me a suitcase. I gave him two passport pictures and a tin box with the money from the weapons factory job, three summers worth. He said, I know someone in Alabama. We could sit on a porch and listen to the silence. He said, children. I said yes. In the year of the fallen angels, I fell in love with my husband. We were the last of the Cold War children, the sum of our reassembled parts. We packed up everything inside two suitcases and a bag and crossed the ocean. 
And we have loved ever since just like that, ignoring all borders. Gypsyo is a native Albanian currently residing in Atlanta, Georgia. She's the author of three poetry collections in her native tongue and four audio CDs in English. We'll have more on the world of Gypsyo on our website, snapjudgment.org. You're listening to the Snap Judgment Lemonade episode. We'll be back in just a moment. NPR, welcome back to the Snap Judgment Lemonade episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and you know, the great thing about doing this show is I get to learn about heroes that I didn't even know I had. Our next piece, it comes to us from the impossibly sweet Dolores Schwab. I'm Dolores Schwab. I'm an artist and a writer. I have raised and trained handicapped children, and uh, over the years we had around 54, but not all at the same time, thank heavens. (laughs) There was only 12 at a time. I'm one of those people that just has a hard time saying can't. My husband and I, we were living in a little place in Pennsylvania, building our own little spot, and... uh, My mother ran a uh, home for severely handicapped children whose prognosis was downhill. She had cancer and asked if somebody could come and help her. Well, I of her four daughters was the one that came. After a year, my husband followed me and we decided we would take children and help them make their own lives to be as whole as they possibly could. We helped autistic children, deaf children, taught them all to swim, taught them all to laugh, more birthday parties than you can imagine. None of my children went to any institutions. They all went out into the public or back to their families. I thought, these poor little children are so damaged, the only thing to do is do something for them. They gave these children something that they had up to this point never had, and that was an upbeat life rather than gloom and doom. She was uh, three and a half years old when she, this little girl came to us. This was the beginning, the first child that I took on. She was an absolute perfect little specimen of a three and a half year old child. Every little hair was in place. She was just a dream child. They plopped her down on my doorstep and told me that she was autistic. I'd never heard the word before. The case manager said she's perfectly potty trained. She has very good table manners, but she does not talk. So I said, okay. And when she left, the little child began to cry. And as a mother, my thought was to reach out and comfort her. When I did this, she screamed. I mean, like I was touching her with a torch. 
I backed off very carefully, and I backed as far away from her as I could, and as I backed away, she calmed down. She was very cautious after that. I couldn't think of anything to do but sit down in a rocking chair, and as I rocked, she began to get more and more quiet. So I thought, okay, let's hum. So I hummed soft little tune for her, and she looked up at me through her hands, and I uh, got up and started walking toward the kitchen. She followed me. She followed me everywhere I went as long as I hummed. I found that if I kept my voice to a very soft whisper, she was very responsive. She never looked directly at you. She only looked at her own hands. And if she did look toward you, she looked through her fingers like she was looking through a window. It was almost like uh, the joy was painful to her. I'd pull the little socks off and I would throw them in the air like I was playing a game. And I would say, wee, you know, and when I did that, she would look up. And it was the only time throughout the day that she actually looked at me. But that was the way I could begin to connect her with me. I wanted her to learn that I was a mama and she was a child. And so I got all kinds of books with pictures of mother animals and, and child animals and I would point to the little child and I would say, this is a baby and this is a mama and the mama loves the baby and I would take my arms and I would put them around her but not touching her, just in a circle. And then I would go to another and she got so that she would put her arms out so she was learning to reach out for me. In anything we do in life, if we begin to uh, realize that we're making some progress where progress has not been made, it becomes a joy within ourselves. She was a joy from the very beginning. We could see she was getting better and better. I can remember one instance we were trying to get words to come, and she came up to her dad, and she put one finger up in front of his face, and she said, I, followed by the second finger, want, the third finger, two, the fourth finger, eat, the fifth finger, please. I want to eat, please, just as plain and well enunciated as any little seven-year-old could. And he just about emptied the cupboard. He was so excited. But one thing about working with children of this nature is you never anticipate what the next big, wonderful thing is going to be. You just accept just one minute little step at a time, and that's all you're asking for. And you just keep going and going. And you take them as far as they can go, and you don't look for uh, any miracles. They don't happen. She's 50 years old. Yes, we made it all the way. She will never be independent. She's a danger to herself. She will drink anything in a plastic or glass bottle that is inappropriate. I've had her at the um, hospital several times after she drank rubbing alcohol, her hairspray, Tylenol. She um, is a runner. If she uh, decides she wants to go, she would run down the street toward where she wants to go. Your daughter's sitting quietly in the back seat, and all of a sudden you stop at a stop sign, and there she is going back down the highway against traffic toward Costco to get her straw. I was never so frightened in my life. And I'm telling you, I am 84 years old, but I found out that I can still run. At the next stop, she did it again, right on the main freeway. We ran her down three times that day. When you go through things like this, you're always on the alert. You never know when something bad is going to happen. That's life. That's the way it was. She is my daughter from beginning to end. I can never imagine not having her where I can talk to her, comfort her. It was, it was a different type of life, but it was, it was fun. A lot of laughter and a lot of tears and a lot of mending and uh, going forward. It's always got to be forward. Thank you, Dolores. We don't know how you've got so much love to go around, but we are glad that you do. 
That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, you know that a doppelganger is a dark double, a shadow twin. But what if your doppelganger is kind of a dork? What does that say about you? Yes, this piece does mention some sort of physical intimacy, but don't worry. This is Public Radio. Adam Wade, the microphone is yours. The first 16 years of my life were, were, were pretty normal. But when I turned 16, uh, I went to get my driver's license and I had to get an eye exam test and I got glasses. And that's when everything changed. That's when everybody started telling me that I look like Rick Moranis. It's like, honey, I shrunk the kids and Ghostbusters and I am the gatekeeper and who's the key master? Non-stop, non-stop, non-stop. And it, it, it really, it dug in. And um, when I was a freshman year in college, I'm not bragging, but I, I was in a girl's room and she said, did anyone ever tell you you look like Rick Moranis? And within two minutes, I was out. Like, no, I, I did not want to hear that. And like, my friends are like, dude, she liked you. What happened? I'm like, no, no. They're like, what happened? I go, she, she said I look like Rick Moranis. They're like, who cares? I go, I care, I care. They go, you're an idiot. I go, well, maybe. Four years ago, I hit my, my, my lowest point living in New York. I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Or I hadn't had a girlfriend in a while. So like what I would do, like a big night for me, was I'd get out of work and I'd go to one of the ritzier hotels and sit in the lobby with a graphic novel and read it. And that was my big night out. So one night I was at one of these like ritzy hotels and like there was like a party going on and I was like curious and I walked over and it was like this huge like pharmaceutical convention. So like I, w I walked in and everybody seemed to be having, having a good time. They're from all over the country and they had their name tags and I, I walked over to the bar and I, I said, hi, uh, can I, I get, a, get a Miller Lite please? And they're like, sure. And so the bartender put down a Miller Lite and I pulled out my wallet and he goes, you're with them, right? You're all set. I go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm with them. Yeah, I'm all set, okay. <laughs> Excuse me, can I get a Heineken Lite? <laughs> Seven Heineken Lights later, and I'm a lightweight. I, I was feeling good, I was lubed up, I was drunk, I was feeling good, I was in the, in the groove. And I locked eyes with this girl. She was like probably in like her mid-20s. She was a healthy-sized girl. She, she looked like Monica Lewinsky. That was good. I like, I like Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> so she walked over and we, we started talking. And, and like she was from like outside of Chicago. And, we, and it was just going well. And like it, right off the bat, and it was nice. And I was a little, oh, this is awesome. And we're going back and forth. And then she says, anyone ever tell you you look like Rick Moranis? And I paused and I waited and then I said, um, well, I should because he's my dad. <laughs> and she's like, really? I go, well, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And my, she's like, I've never met anybody famous before. I go, well, I mean, I'm his son. She's like, no, famous. I go, okay, yeah, I'm famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it continued to go well and I walked her back or two blocks to her hotel and we were there and, and like, it was my time to make the move. And I said, I go, you know, I, I had a really quick great time tonight. You know? And she's like, well, the night's not over. Do, do, do you want to come back to my hotel room? And I said, yeah, yes, please, yes. I'd, I'd, uh, yeah, sure, sure. So we go back, and like, I'm not a kiss and tell, I don't like, I'm not a kiss and tell guy. I don't like doing that. But we had a good time. Twice. So she fell asleep in my arms, and I, I just remember, like, like two, two hours later, like, I woke up and I had a major panic attack, and I'm like, this isn't good. This isn't Adam Way. This is not what you do. You don't lie to get action, and you do this stuff. So we woke up in the morning, and we walk her down the street, and I'm, like, shaking. I'm, like, nervous, and I'm flagging her a cab to the airport, and I said, hey, wait a minute. I got to tell you something. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really Rick Moranis' son. And she looked at me, and she squeezed my arm, and she's like, I kind of figured that out a while ago. I was like, oh, okay, okay. But I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you role-playing in this fantasy that I've had. <laughs> she, like, kissed me on the cheek, and then she, 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 she drove off.
There's been many times like in my life where Rick Moranis has denied me happiness. <laughs> but four years ago, Rick Moranis gave me good times. <laughs> Twice. Thank you, Adam Wade. Adam Wade is a storyteller and comedian from New York City. Be sure to check him out at adamwade.com. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf. What's this? You've drank almost the entire glass of snap lemonade and you're still thirsty? Well, don't worry. There's plenty more left in the fridge. Full episodes, movies, pictures, music, all the snap you can drink. Snapjudgment.org. Snap Rocks iTunes, you better get it. Join the Snap Nation conversation on Facebook. Our Twitter handle, SnapJudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself, but never alone. Never alone. He puts extra sugar in the Kool-Aid each and every week. The Uber producer. Mr. Mark Wistich. Jamie DeWolf drinks from the tap. Anna Sussman adds something to her lemonade. Stephanie Fu hates lemon. Pat Lassiti Miller hates A. Julia DeWitt only uses crazy straws and only organic for Renzo Gorio, but never organic for Will Urbina. On a super hot day, after mowing the lawn, did you ever open the refrigerator only to find an empty pitcher where the lemonade used to be? (gasps) Don't get upset. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting didn't know you were saving that. (laughs) Many thanks, though, to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, making the public and the media sit next to each other. PRX.org. This is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you can go down to the local biker bar, tell them that you heard bad stuff about them at the other biker bar. And after they get done fighting each other, you can tell them that this is ridiculous. People shouldn't stereotype bikers at the end of public radio shows. Yes, you could do all of that and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.